Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Tolstoy wrote, the two most powerful warriors are patience and time. It's a great statement about the battle between patience and time. Those two can be enemies in all of our lives. We, we know that patience is a virtue that is supposed to be in our lives. We know that God nourishes it in the lives of believers through his spirit. It is a fruit of the spirit. And so we are to pursue being patient. And yet, the competition against that is time. The clock is always ticking. The deadlines are always approaching. We are not a, not a slow people, especially those of us who, you know, we live here in Northern Virginia, so we're always in a hurry to get somewhere, and there's always traffic that's entirely throwing that off. And you talk about testing our patience. We go through it day after day. Patience and time. The weeks leading up to summer vacation seem to drag, don't they? You're waiting and you're counting down and then you get on vacation and the days just fly by and you wonder where it all went. Seems to race by. Time is extremely important, not only to us, but clearly to the writer of Ecclesiastes. And part of the reason that time is so important to him is what we saw last week in Ecclesiastes 2, which is this awareness of death. He's demonstrated already this almost frustration with death. The fact that death just sort of ends all of his work and all of his accomplishments and all of his striving and, and standing there at some point, some unknown mark, is death. And it clearly frustrates the teacher in Ecclesiastes, particularly when he's talking about this under-the-sun worldview. If your worldview, your look at life, is detached from God, it is a godless worldview, and you see life as only what is here and now, only what is under the sun to be lived, savored, enjoyed, and taken in because this is all there is, well, then death is a very real enemy. Death is a profound sort of mark that, that comes and ends all of that. It is always looming over life, ready to demolish your accomplishments and to rob any of the meaning that you thought you might be gaining through life here on earth. As we saw last week, you, you can't take it with you when you go. All that's been acquired, all that's been accomplished, all that's been listed on the resume at death ends and gets passed on maybe to a fool who doesn't even know what to do with it. Death claims both the rich and the poor and the wise and the foolish. And so with that kind of an outlook, time becomes this extraordinary commodity. Presuming that this is Solomon who writes this, and, and from what we've seen from this teacher, this, this guy has the wherewithal to get anything that he wants in terms of pleasures, uh, buildings. He's got plenty of wealth at his fingertips with which to buy what he wants to enjoy life. And the one thing that eludes him that he can't control and he can't expand on and can't buy is time. Can't postpone death. And this becomes sort of this nagging awareness to him. He couldn't sort of freeze the good moments. You ever have that time when you're in just a wonderful season and you just wish, I could just freeze this right where it is and just hold on to this for just a little longer and savor it? We can't speed up the bad moments, those times when we're in the valleys and we just wish somehow we could rush to the other side. 
writer of Ecclesiastes can't do that. And so he pens some words that we're going to begin to read here in Ecclesiastes 3 that starts with a poem that actually became a fairly popular song, was turned into a fairly popular song in the 1960s. For most of you, that's a very long time ago and before you, but some of us remember that song, turn, 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 right? Well, this morning we're going to start here in chapter 3. We're going to work our way through the beginning part, actually, of chapter 4, and just look at this intersection between God, man, and time. Let me give you three points that will kind of guide what we're looking at. And this is not a firm outline in the sense that it'll be, this one goes with these verses and then these verses and then these, because it's just not the way this passage is laid out. This is not an easily organized passage this morning. This was one of those weeks where on Monday, I'm reading and reading and thinking, why did I think Ecclesiastes was such a good idea? So this is an interesting one. And so here, here's kind of three points that you're going to see in this passage, and we're going to go in and out of them as we move through. First one is God rules over time. That, he's going to make that clear right from the beginning, that God is the sovereign over time. Secondly, that the, the consequence of that is we are under God's rule over time, so our time is in God's hand. And then the third point is that we need to be content with that. We need to be able to rest in God's control over time and therefore make the most out of the time God has given us. Whenever the Bible talks about God being king, ruler, sovereign, man's response, sinful man's response, tends to be in one of two directions. Either to reject the fact that God would rule over my time and tell me what to do and fight against that, dismiss it and go on and live for myself, or some form of fatalism which says, well, all right, this is all up to God, then I don't really have any responsibility and I'm just going to sit back and, and not do anything. Neither is the right response. So let's read this beginning part in, in this familiar poem in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. I did not listen to that song much this week because I didn't want it in my mind so that I would start to break into some sing-song and really disappoint you in trying to sing that in any way. A number of scholars have said this is just pure pessimism, that really what the teacher here is, is doing is saying, listen, I feel imprisoned by this sense of, of time, that there's appointed times for things. To a degree, that's, that's right, although the outcome should not necessarily be pessimism. These verses, again, are building on what we saw in, in chapter 2 about death and the fact that death is inevitable. And why this starts where it does in verse 1 is really to stake out the markers. I should say in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. God has staked out boundaries for our lives, an appointed time of birth, and an appointed moment of death. You are immortal, 
until that time to die comes, but you cannot surpass that boundary either. And he starts there in verse 1 by saying seasons. There's a time and a season there. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter. Both words have the idea of set points. There is a moment. There is an appointed time for these things. And, and what he's trying to, to say to us, and we'll do so in the broader context of what we read, is these are times that are ultimately under the sovereign rule of God. He says down in verse 11, and we'll look at it a little bit more in, in a few minutes, God will make everything beautiful in its time. Later on in verse 14, what God does endures forever in comparison with what man does, which is under that rule of God. In Ecclesiastes 6.10, it says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Conveying again the message to us that God rules, and you and I will not overturn that rule. We may seek to rebel against it. We may sinfully try to despise God's rule, but we cannot change God's rule. We cannot in some way overturn it. And that's why then chapter 2 had exhorted us to take food and drink and work as gifts from God and enjoy them. Because essentially what he's saying is just, just receive this as what God has given. Take what God has appointed and be thankful for it instead of fighting against it in some way. In fact, it said there, and we saw this last week in chapter 2, verse 25, for apart from God, or apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The, the, the point being that, that things don't happen randomly. We are fully dependent on God. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler. We are the subjects who are dependent on him, and we are blessed in the fact that he is a loving and gracious God who purposes for his glory but also for our good. The writer of Ecclesiastes is really settled on this idea of God's sovereignty. It's not an issue that he's debating. What he's talking about here is the response to that. And the under-the-sun approach doesn't like it. It is what Romans 1 talks about. They suppress the truth and ungodliness. Yeah, okay, you can tell me all you want that there's a God and that God's in control and that he's sovereign. I don't have to believe that. I don't have to accept that. I don't have to live like that. And that's the under-the-sun approach. I'm just going to live for myself in the here and now and, and, and suppress that truth. The fact of the matter is we are fully responsible before God. He is sovereign. The New Testament book of James warns us in chapter 4 about trying to determine our futures through good planning. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. God is sovereign over time. It's okay to, to think about the future and to do some planning, but don't, don't act like you determine the future. God is sovereign. Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's what we're seeing here in Ecclesiastes 3. That's what the course of this poem is about. God not only marks out the boundaries the beginning and the end, but also he appoints the times and the seasons of the full range of human activity. And so we've got this great description of life here on earth, of planting and harvesting, of 
laughing and crying, of building, of tearing down, of breaking, of fixing, finding, losing, speaking, listening, all of these pairs that are designed by showing us the opposites to say all of this is included under the rule of a God who appoints the times and the seasons. As David wrote in Psalm 31, I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hand. One commentator puts it this way. If we're tempted to view events and experiences in exclusively secular, under-the-sun terms, Solomon reminds us that, in fact, these same events and experiences take place under heaven. And heaven is the throne of the sovereign God. It is all under his rule. And so most of verses 2 through 8, the idea here is to capture this living life under the rule of God over time. Most of these, I think, are probably self-explanatory, but let me just pull out a couple. We're not going to go through each one of these, um, but just a couple of highlights to mention along the way. Verse 3, when it says a time to kill, that is not the same Hebrew word as in the Ten Commandments, and thou shalt not kill. What it's really likely referring to is the idea of just war or self-defense, that there are times, even within God's design, in which that takes place, in which people die, uh, and we clearly see it even in the, the punishments in, in throughout the Old Testament law. So there is a time for that, but it is not speaking about murder, just sort of wanton killing. Verse 5 is the, the first part of it, time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together is probably the least clear. Um, if you read six different commentaries of this, you'll get six different interpretations of what it means. Uh, there's the ancient practice of having defeated an enemy scattering stones all through their fields so that they can no longer plant and grow in those places. Um, so kind of an act of war and then an act of sort of reprieve. There's some Jewish scholars who connect this with sexual activity. Sorry, all the parents have got the plugging in kids in here. I shouldn't even go there. While others say it's about accumulating and losing riches. We don't know for sure exactly what, what verse 5 is, is referring to. Um, other than, again, it fits in this large scope of um, activity in human life. Verse 8, the last one in this, um, addresses a time to love and a time to hate. There's, clearly, Scripture defines for us sinful hating that we are not called to do to hate other individuals that are, that are made in the image of God. But there is also a, a clear biblical description of hatred in the sense of rejecting that which is evil, or even in the sense in, in which Jesus speaks about the one who would follow after him must hate his family members. The, the idea of a love being so strong for one thing that in contrast the appearance is almost that of hate or rejection. So it is the idea here that there is a time to reject some things that God would reject and a time to embrace the things and indeed, God would have us embrace. So above all, the key to this is it is human activity under the governance of God. I think the context is going to bear that out. All of these things unfolding under the will of a God who works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. So look at verse 9. So this is now his response to all this. What gain has the worker from his toil? There's the question. Same question he asked back in the third verse of the book. So what's the point in all of this? Why work in light of this? And he dealt with this, if you remember last week, a little bit in chapter 2 by finally coming to the place of saying, okay, so work is a gift from God. 
And so therefore I'm to receive it as that and, and to work in a thankful way, in a humble way of, of, of gratitude toward God. But you can see why he would ask this question, especially in light of chapter 2 and, and, and all of his discussion about death ending all of the accomplishments of his work. If now, he says, if now what we're saying is God is ruling over time and all of these times and seasons are appointed by God, so why should I bother? It's essentially the fatalistic reaction of what do I get out of this? God's the king. God's doing all this. So, so what do I get if God rules over all of this? Here's his answer. Verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Stop there for a moment. The, the, the work that we do has value and matters because it matters to God. Because from the, the working that begins in the garden all the way through to what we see in the New Testament about working unto the Lord and working unto the Lord Jesus Christ, God cares about our work and how we do our work and what our heart attitude is like as we approach our work. Our work matters to God, and we're to receive it as a gift. And so he says there, I've seen the business God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's again an allusion to the fact that God has provided this, and not only has he provided it, but God's the one who prospers it. And so that's why verse 11 says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That word for beautiful could also be excellent or appropriate or useful. God is the one who takes the work of our feeble hands that we sometimes feel is just utterly pointless, and God brings value to it. God brings the labor that we do at home, that we do in the workplace, the efforts that we pour forth. God is the one who then it says makes everything beautiful, who makes it useful, who makes it valuable. So God gives meaning and value to our labor. But then he transitions, the last part of verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Stop there. So he's shifting for the, really the first time here. We've dealt with a lot in the past and mostly how life goes on in the present and how we should receive things in the present as a gift from God and, and eat and drink and, and be thankful and it's, it's you know, sort of daily living stuff. But now he's changing perspective a little bit to say, and, and beyond that, it's not just under the sun. There's not just a God who's given you this as a gift, but there's actually more to this life. And he brings in a term there in verse 11, and then again in verse 14. In 11, it's um, he has put eternity into man's hearts. And in verse 14, what God does endures forever. A Hebrew word that, that means eternity. And so all of a sudden now he's, he's saying, and not only, not only is life okay under the sun because what we have is a gift from God and we should enjoy it as such and be good stewards of it and know that God brings value to it, and so that's good. But he also says there's something else. God has put within you and I uniquely this innate sense that says, this isn't all there is. I can, 
I can defiantly hold to an under-the-sun approach, but I do that against my, my nature that tells me there is, there is something after I die. There is something more to this existence than simply dying and being buried and, and, and having it end. He is essentially differentiating man from the rest of God's creation. It's verse 11 really describes it and says he's put eternity into man's heart. The under-the-sun approach tries to suppress this. But the reason man cannot find ultimate satisfaction and joy in all of the things he's built and all of his conquests and all of his empire and, and everything that he has here on earth, the reason that it ultimately isn't joyfully satisfying is because God has made us to long for more, to, to know that we were not created just for accomplishment in this life, but we were created to live eternally. For as much as God can bring beauty and usefulness out of our labor in this life, something within us still longs for more. It longs for communion with our creator. It longs for something then that surpasses this life. One writer said it this way, we feel like aliens in the world of time and yearn to be part of eternity. We feel the need for ourselves and our work to be eternal and yet are grieved to be trapped in time. And what the writer in Ecclesiastes is saying is that is God's design to cause man to say, if this is it, if this is all there is, and I die and am buried, that doesn't make sense. Because there's something, something within this innate sense that there really is more, that there is something that surpasses death. The problem, though, is we can't see the whole sweep of eternity. Verse 11 says he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The, 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 the point there, again, is we are not God. So he's giving us that eternal longing, but reminding us that we are not God. We are still human beings trapped in time. And so we know what's recorded in the past. We understand what God has revealed, but we don't know how this is all going to unfold in terms of our individual lives over the days or months or years to come. We can't see the beginning from the end as God can. And so again, the, the response tends to be, I don't care then. I, I, don't believe, I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in a God who judges. And so I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to live for myself. Or you can respond in faith. And the picture here. In verse 12, I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, to eat and drink and take pleasure in their toil is a response of faith. It is to say, as verse 11 said, I can't see the end from the beginning. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't even know what this afternoon holds for me. I, I sort of have some ideas, but, but it may go totally against what I imagine. I have no idea, but I can, I can in this moment give thanks and say, thank you, Lord that I, in this moment I, I can breathe, I can, I can look around at my family, I, I, I can just take in what you've created. I can go eat lunch in a little while, and I can have something to drink, and I can work. That response of joyful faith, and it goes even beyond that to verse 14 when he says that what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to or taken away. God has done it so that people fear before him. Because in the end, the one thing that he wants us to see here is that God's work is eternal and immutable. It is unchanging. 
Man cannot alter the work of God. It doesn't need fixing in the first place, and, and we certainly don't have the power to, to, to change God's work or to alter it in any way. And his point here is that should cause us to be in awe of God when he says to fear him. He's introducing a word here for the first time in Ecclesiastes that we're now going to see come up several times, and that will be the sort of hinge word in his conclusion to this whole book, fear God. And he begins it right here by saying, look, all the stuff you and I do, yeah, God gives it value, but one day you're going to die, and it's, it's still temporary. It's still fleeting. And one day you're going to be beyond this life, and all of that stuff will be left behind. But what God does endures forever and never needs to be changed. God never needs version 2. Anything that God does doesn't need 2.0. It's all 1.0 from day 6 when he said it was very good, and it's never needed updating since. Because what God does endures forever. And, and his point to us is, Imagine that. Look at our lives. How many of the things we do need fixing and changing and they wear out and we've got to buy new and, and we've got to replace and, and, and get the latest version? And he's saying, look at God. What his work is endures forever. And that should cause us to be in awe of him, to, to fear him. The fact that he is sovereign over time and brings value to our feeble efforts should bring us to our knees. And then he says, verse 15, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Another interesting verse. It's clearly stressing the eternality of God. He oversees past, present, and future. What he does endures forever. It's just carrying on that theme. That last part of the verse is a little trickier where it says, God seeks out that which has been pursued or driven away. I want to suggest to you, and again, when, when this was written, presumably by Solomon in the Hebrew, there were not little breaks that, that, like your text might say, the next section is from dust to dust. That was not part of the original text, and the verse numbers weren't. So I, I would suggest to you that this next part reads on into what we're about to read in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. It's an old legal saying, justice delayed is justice denied, right? Have you heard that? Or is that just making that up from off of Wikipedia? No, that is, right, an old saying. Justice delayed is justice denied. Never been truer than it is today when we see blatant injustice, we want it fixed. And this is where time comes into play because we want it fixed quickly, right? We don't want to see people suffer injustice. It's one of those areas where we see a victim who is wronged, who is mistreated, and it seems so obvious, and we wonder, why is there any delay in this? If, if there is injustice, and there is clearly somebody who has done something unjust, and there is a victim, then fix it. Then, then they should get justice. Jump ahead with me just for a moment, because he's, he's going to reiterate this theme. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. 
There are those, by the way, when we talked the first week about questions about whether or not Solomon is the human author, this is one of those passages where they look and go, well, see, he's king, so he shouldn't, none of this should be happening if he's king, because he's essentially indicting his kingdom. Frankly, this, this is a reality throughout the world. I mean, Solomon would, wouldn't have had to look far to see that no matter how well he ruled, there would still be injustice, there would still be oppression, there would still pe be people who would take advantage of power and who would oppress others and victimize them in some way. But the point he's making here, again, in, in, in the greater context is, this is a time issue in that we can't see the end from the beginning. All we see is the suffering and the oppression and the injustice, and we think, why isn't this being solved? Why, why, why isn't there justice at this moment? Why are people being persecuted in this way? To the point that he even says in verse 3, I almost wish I was never born rather than to watch the kind of cruelty that I see one person do to another. The kind of injustice that someone in power does to someone who's not in power. He says, I, just, I wish I had not even had to see that. So what's his answer? I think there's two parts to it. One goes back, if we go back to where we were in chapter 3, he just talked about injustice in the place of righteousness. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The, the message from the teacher is there is a time for justice. You and I may not see it. And that's what frustrates us, just like it can frustrate us with that under-the-sun approach to life as to why I don't get the, the blessings I think I should get or the rewards I should get. Why, why, doesn't, why don't good things happen more quickly? And here he's saying when it comes to justice, even there, God will judge. There's a time. When justice is not delivered in a timely manner, we can rest in the eternal judgment of God. He is a just God, and it does not escape his view. And as frustrating as that may seem at times here on earth, when we see things that seem so blatantly unjust, we can still rest in the ultimate justice of God. He will do what is right. And it's the last part of verse 15 that I think, as I was saying to you before, flows into it. The idea is God seeks out what has been driven away. God seeks out those who are oppressed. God seeks out those who are victimized. God is concerned about the, the orphan and the widow, about those who are, are treated unfairly. God does care for them. And one of the ways he cares for them is his promise of justice. Even when it seems from our limited perspective where we can't see the end from the beginning, God is still just, and we can rest in that. He's in control of our times. So back to 318. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity, hebel. All go to one place, all are from the dust, all return to dust. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. This is... A difficult passage, just to be really honest with you, and you read that, and, and hopefully as you look at it, you go, what, what exactly is he saying here? So not only will God judge the, the just and the wicked according to a righteous judgment, but verse 18 says part of what he's doing is also testing us, not so that he can see the outcome, but testing us to prove to us, to show us that we are not invincible, that we are mortal human beings, 
And so that for as great and as mighty as we think we are, as wonderful as we think our justice system is, as wonderful as we think our government is, as wonderful as we think our business and our stuff is, God is consistently proving to us that no, you are not invincible, you are a mere mortal, and you will die, and your body is made up of the same elements that that creature over there, that animal over there is in the sense that you will die and you will decompose, be buried. It's the harsh truth, just as an animal. There's no difference in that sense. Our bodies are not somehow uniquely um, going to surpass and just, you know, we've got unique strength in some way. His point here is your body will return to the dust just as the animal's. Verse 21 is another one of these difficult verses. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. A couple of ways of looking at that. One is that the, the word for spirit in the Hebrew, ruach, is either the spirit as in the inner man or breath, even as in life. The picture seems to be that one way or another, life will leave that mortal body of yours. Life will leave and at that point, the human being will go on and, and presumably, in, in, in this description here, will go upward to stand before his creator and judge, and there is no similar assurance when it comes to the animal. For those of you with pet dogs who have gone on, I'm not going to try to bear out the implications of that. <laughs> so you, you can wrestle with that on your own and what happens to dogs and all that kind of good stuff. Except that heaven is full of delights and things that we enjoy and love, so let, we can hold out some hope in there. The, the point he's trying to make is not so much spiritual end here as it is saying you will die just like animals die. He does clarify this when you go on to Ecclesiastes 12, 7. He says, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So he's not unsure here about what happens to you and I and the fact that we do have an eternal existence and that ultimately man stands before his creator accountable for his life. That much is clear. You will die and you will stand before God. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed unto man to die once and after that, what? Judgment, standing before the eternal God of heaven, accountable at that point for your life and whether or not you have put your trust in his son and in his truth. Ecclesiastes 3.22 then says, So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Point of all this is we will die and God will justly and righteously settle the scores. We don't know all that lies ahead. Thus the point, who can bring him to see what will be after him? Only God can, can, can bring us if he so chooses to show us. But the fact is no one can show you what lies ahead of you. You live life by faith in God, stepping forward in faith, trusting him. We cannot see the future. And therefore, what he calls us to, what Scripture calls us to, is there's nothing better than to rejoice in his work. There's nothing better than to be at peace and rest in God's goodness and his rule over time and the work that he's given us. And in fact, that's where we're going to finish up. The last three verses we'll look at this morning. And we looked at the beginning of chapter 4, those first three. Pick up in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is 
Vanity and a striving after wind. It's been a little while since we've heard that, right? Vanity and striving after the wind. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Here's where we are in this. So we're wrestling through with God has appointed times. We've got to know that God is in control of all this. The reaction to that, he's going to give us two wrong ways and then the correct way to finish up with. And the two wrong ways, the first one is verse 4. And that is the, I reject that, that God is in control. I, I will not submit to that. I am going to get what I want to get out of life, and I am going to fight for it. And in fact, he says, basically, it is work that is driven by the envy of one's neighbor. I will take the short time that I have here on earth, and I will get everything I can for my personal gain. And in fact, the standard that I will look to is my neighbor, so that I have a better house and a better car at least than him. And then I'll at least know that I've had some level of success. My yard looks better than his. I keep it better, it's greener, something. And it's all this envy-driven strife to try to accomplish all there is in time under the sun. Verse 5 is the other wrong approach, and essentially it's fatalism. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's the idea that if you're telling me that my times are appointed by God, and God is sovereign, and he rules over it, I am folding my hands, and I am not going to do anything. I don't care. I got nothing to prove. It's all up to God. Whatever comes of it is of God. And so I am going to do nothing. And the idea when it says there that he eats his flesh is he's got nothing. He's got nothing to eat because he won't work. He won't do anything. So he's left with his own flesh at that point. This, this individual has said, God's sovereign? Fine. I'm going to go live somewhere out in the desert and do nothing. And I'll trust that God will do whatever he wants to do. The answer from the text is really, I think, verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Instead of the two-fisted grab at trying to get everything there is to get out of life, which we've already seen, or the foolish sort of folding of the hands, the teacher says, you know what's best? A handful of quietness. The Hebrew word for quietness has the idea of stillness, of being at rest. It was used in, in some context to speak of victory or salvation in the sense of an athlete who has just gone out and performed at peak performance and put everything out there and run and run and got to the finish line and was victorious and, and finishes and gets to the end and is able to just stop and savor. Wow, that was something. That feels good. And just just quietly take in that moment and savor it. That's what that idea, that handful of, of quietness, that's really where that word sort of leads. It's, it's contentment. It's being able to say, this is good. I'm, I, I, I can just be content here. It may not be, may not be all of the accomplishments or the achievements, and that's okay. It's good. Book of Hebrews in the New Testament talks a lot about rest, doesn't it? There's portions in there that talk about entering into God's rest in the book of Hebrews and warnings about God's rest. And it says that God's rest, remember the seventh day God rested? God didn't rest because he was fatigued or needed the rest. God's rest was a symbol of completeness, that God was finished, it was done, the work was perfect, it would last and endure, and God rested. Genesis 2.2 says. It's like putting an exclamation point on creation. But that rest was designed for you and I to be a pattern. 
for this life in terms of work and rest. God's made us as human beings that we work, and then we still need rest. We can't go on and on. At some point, we need to rest. But it was also meant to be an eternal picture. We live this life, and we go through all the hardships and challenges of this life with the hope. When somebody dies, we say, rest in peace, right? With the hope that death brings rest. And that's what Hebrews is talking about. There is an eternal rest. There is that which awaits God's people so that after the striving and the suffering of this life, there is a rest that we enter. Hebrews describes the rebellious Israelites who saw God's work and didn't enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. Let me just read Hebrews 4 verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That disobedience being disobedience to God and to his word and to his gospel. And he's warning us here that we have, we have this life to spend God has in his word called us to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live life for him, to take the time that we have and to savor it as a gift of his and to live it as good stewards and to then enter into that rest. Ecclesiastes is so clear. Life under the sun, if that's it, it's just this whirlwind of activity. I'm going and I'm doing and it's all for me, myself, and I and not looking forward to eternity. But there is a rest and a peace and a joy and a satisfaction. So therefore, the writer can say, better is a handful of quietness. Better is the ability to just trust that it's okay that God rules over time. I can rest in that. Best thing I can do is use my time for his glory and for his sake. We enter into that peace and rest only by being at peace with God, by embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ and resting in his rule. Our time is so short, isn't it? You, you look at the headlines, and, and, and I think it's worse for us in, this, in the Internet age, so much death and violence that we probably never knew about before the Internet came along, and now we see it when it happens, almost as if live. When a young girl gets killed on train tracks the other night, or... or toddler, two-year-old toddlers drown in a pool up in Loudoun, and, and, and we just, you realize again, life, we can't see the end from the beginning. And so the call from Ecclesiastes is you don't, you don't control the clock. So savor these moments. Live them as gifts from God. Treat them as you would a gift. Moses said it in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to use our time well to be thankful that there is a time for birth, time to die. Teach us to be content. Teach us to not be restless and agitated. Earlier this week, I had a friend of mine who I've known since I was just a little kid. And, and frankly, I'll be very honest, we've been Facebook friends for most of the last 20 years. But we ran around Brookdale Baptist Church in New Jersey together as five- and six-year-olds and got in trouble. So he's my age, and he died on, on Wednesday night. And I'll, 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 what I intend to do is I'll put out an email, those of you on the email list, and I'll give you a, a little bit more because if I try to explain it here, I'll be a mess. 
But, you know, he's his worship pastor down in Texas, and they're having his funeral this afternoon. His, his Facebook page is just replete with people saying, here's how you ministered to me. Here's how you served me. Here's how you showed me Christ. Here's where you reached me at this point. And it's just story after story after story of people saying, you showed Christ to me. And I read all that, and, and, and oh man, there's, there's a spirit of sadness that, wow, he's gone so suddenly. And there's a spirit, frankly, of jealousy of, wow, what, how well to live one's life. Really, that's what we're being called to, is that we would see our moments from God as gifts from his hand, that we would show Christ in all that we do so that we would come to the end of that race as he has done and stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this gift of time and the moments we've just spent together looking at your word moments that we leave here and moments when we embrace each other and we go from here. We've got the privilege of being able to fellowship together and, and love one another and, and then just savor that. Lord, help us to be content. Lord, you know our hearts. I know my heart and the, the striving in it at times for something else, something more, something better. Lord, cause us to Meditate on Ecclesiastes and know that under your kind and sovereign rule, there is a time for living out life and enjoying the blessings that you've given to us, just savoring them, knowing that one day, each one here, whether it is your return or you call us home, we will stand in your presence Lord, cause us to live in longing for that day and live in light of that day with such contentment and gratitude and delight in the fact that you're taking the, the feeble efforts of our hands and you're bringing fruit to bear out of that. You're, you're bringing excellence out of what we do. Cause us to be grateful for that. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you at just the right time, Galatians says, he was sent forth to be born of a virgin and to give his life as a ransom and at just your appointed time. Your son left the glories of heaven to come and be a man and to give his life as a ransom for sinners. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ that surpasses this life, that causes us to not fear death, that causes us not to fear what tomorrow brings or how difficult the situations are that we face, but allows us to rest in you and to know that you are the king and ruler, and we can trust you. Help us to do that this day. We pray it in Jesus' name.